Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am once again, Catherine Troyer, and once again, I am so excited to be joined by Tony Tresca. Howdy. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic. As we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible, each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion over 2011's Scream 4. Isn't it sad that this is the end of our Scream discussion, at least for a little while? Yeah, it is. We've uh, we've reached the end of another franchise, another Wes Craven franchise, and like Nightmare, it's it's certainly bittersweet because these films are a heck of a lot of fun to watch and to talk about with you here. Honestly, yeah, and I think I got accustomed to the the luxuriousness of the Nightmare franchise being so long. You know, like, yeah. so I was like, we can go on for years, but you know, there's just the four that had been out. And then of course, Scream 5 just came out, but that's, that's not very many. So we'll just have to hope that Scream 6, which I've been hearing rumors about, I, I saw a picture that I was like, who, who took this picture that, you know, like Courtney yeah. Cox had signed on to, to Scream 6. Yeah. I, I saw that as well. I saw the original cast is good coming back. So and and that's one of the great parts about Scream 4 is that, you know, as, as we talked about in some of our earlier episodes, there was always a plan for Scream 1, 2, and 3, although Scream 3 right. deviated drastically from where I think everyone anticipated it going originally. Yeah, due to the, as we discussed in that podcast episode, some studio kind of interference, changes with the writer, and then uh, some just additional changes after the Columbine shooting. And so Scream 4 was was always sort of the like, but what if we brought everyone back sort of feel? Yeah. And, and it has it has that feel to it. I think there's something very celebratory about Scream 4 because, you know, at the time they didn't know that there was going to be more films in the franchise. And it was like, a, but what if we took this film that we have said is a brand new formula and put it out there in a time when we have now that new formula is old, right? Like, so what would be the right. next new formula. And Scream 4, I think, does a really good job of answering that question. Yeah, and this film is clearly like satirizing the remake culture. And remake culture is nothing new, particularly like within the horror genre. Feels like as long as they've been making horror movies, they've been remaking the same ones for new audiences. And Scream 4 is really interesting in that it's this kind of self-referential remake that in a rare case brings back As we've just been discussing, almost all of the original actors, it brings back the original director, Wes Craven. It brings back the writer, Kevin Williamson. It's produced by the same production companies. So it's just this really interesting continuity in the Scream franchise and in this remake that is not present in a lot of other remakes, horror or not. Yes. It's like, how rare is it that a director comes back for four movies within the franchise in a row. Yeah, it really is only going to be those those rare directors that it's their passion project, right? Yeah. And this is just brimming with passion and exactly. makes it so much fun to watch. 
So before we get into our larger, more nuanced, scholarly discussion of Scream 4, let's begin with a little bit of information about the plot of Scream 4, just in case you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a while. And I I love your plot summaries because I love how you like, you're you're so good about showing just a little bit of ankle, right? Like you te- you offer such a great tease. So I'm so excited to hear it for the first time. Your pot summary, yay! All right, so we are 15 years after the original Woodsboro murders, and what do you know? Teenagers start dying again. It's when Sydney Prescott returns back to Woodsboro. So now Sydney and the original gang has got to come back together, remake the original crew, and figure out how to take down Ghostface for a new generation. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> and, and that new generation, it's an interesting group in terms of both characters and in terms of actors. Because yes. in terms of characters, it's Sydney's niece, right? Jill. Jill. And, you know, and her friends. In in terms of acting, it's it's also like the next generation, right? Because it's Julia Roberts' niece, Emma Roberts. Right. It's Macaulay Culkin's brother. Is it which which brother is it? Uh, Rory. Thank you, Rory Culkin. Um, Hayden Panettiere had been like in a whole bunch of stuff, and it was kind of the the face of of like a, a next sort of generation of films. Um, yeah. I mean, even the cops have a kind of a newer look, like with Adam Brody and Anthony Anderson. Exactly, exactly. So it's this weird mix between characters that are are the next generation, uh, literally, as as well as actors that are the next generation. And I want to go back to something you said, where you said that there's a lot of continuity, because there is. There's a lot of continuity, and yet, at the same time, this film really is cognizant of the fact that that there have been some really important changes mm-hmm. in in life, uh, in technology and culture. So this is the first of the Scream films that's going to be post 9-11. And, and yeah. there are lots of scholars. One of my favorite is, is Kevin Wetmore, who have devoted a lot of time to looking at how American horror has markedly shifted pre- and post 9-11, right? That, that post 9-11 had an impact on the horror franchise in really obvious ways. So for example, the number of zombie films just skyrocketed after 9-11. Right. But also in, in, in terms of, of unexpected ways, right? So our, our understanding of who could be the, the monster um, or the possibility that it could be someone that looks an awful lot like us, someone that we trust, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and those are not new Right, Scream had the same premise of like it's someone that that Sydney trusted, but yeah. I think Scream Four realized that in an even more sort of significant way. Yeah, with that, I mean, this is the first one since the original Scream in which I felt the mystery really worked because yes. that that killer who you're teasing in that sentence uh, is is ultimately Jill. Yes, Jill, uh, Sydney's niece who is decided to kind of organize all of these kills uh, along with Charlie for seemingly she just wants to be famous, which is yet another interesting thing because this film post 9-11 also posts the widespread usage of social media for the first time, which this film also comments on. One of the scariest lines in this film uh, is delivered by 
Emma Roberts is Jill, and she says, I don't need friends, I need fans. Yeah. And, like, every time I hear that line, it just gives me chills because if that isn't the tagline of an entire generation, I don't know what is. So we have, like you said, social media. We just ha- also have an increase in technology. And so in mm-hmm. terms of scholarship, there there are a number of scholars that that comment on the fact that the, one of the things we have to think about in Scream 4 is the ways that it both still utilizes some sort of pre-technology means. Most people mm-hmm. still die by knives, right? Right. But it also introduces new technology and, and sort of new ways of understanding technology. And Scream was pretty revolutionary in doing that too, right? Gail's little hidden camera right. allowed us to do that. But but this film, Scream 4, starts with our cold openings of being films within films than a film <laughs> and, then yeah. we, and then we watch at several other times the film that uh charlie is making that is of the film you know i mean it gets real real extra meta it gets there. real <laughs> meta as they say i mean courtney cox's character gail has like some really funny line where she's like i don't know they keep saying meta or whatever yes. so i just started using it and i was like that's hilarious <laughs> yes because like we need that line because not only not only is it just hysterical? But it's hysterical in part because, you know, she's representing the old guard uh, yeah. who who are like, I don't know what the kids are talking about these days. But she's <sighs> also the reason that that term is in existence, right? So it's, just, it's right. such a funny line, such a funny film in terms of just some of the lines and some of the like scenes. I think I I missed Kevin Williamson in, in Scream 3. Like, he yeah. has a knack for scenes in a way that I, I think is, is super exceptional. Scenes, and then I think also just, like, he is a little bit better at setup and payoff, because then it in Scream 3, it kind of felt like uh, there was a little bit of setup to that insane, wacky brother plot that came out, but it mostly kind of felt like it came out of nowhere. Whereas with this one, I feel like there were just so many little seeds that were planted and then Kevin just watered them throughout the movie and it grew into this beautiful, beautiful film. I want to take a minute and and talk about some of the scholarship because there is some scholarship on Scream 4. I think in part because, yeah, I think in part because, you know, at the time people thought that was probably going to be the end of the cycle and it was doing enough different things that you know, unlike Scream 3, which I think kind of fell into the cracks of of what it was trying to do, uh, you know, Scream 4 sort of hit the mark, but also hit a different mark, right? It was doing different things. So one of the the things that I love, because anyone can find it online, and I will include the description, the link uh, in the episode description. So there's a, a group of scholars that do something called the Horror Homeroom, which is a great mm-hmm. sort of combination of, of blogs and, and podcasts and all that stuff. And they produced an, an issue in 2021 called the Neo Slasher. So they do these like academia light to so their scholarship, but you don't have to like read 17 footnotes and then a footnote on a footnote type thing. Um, and so they have one called the Neo Slasher and it's their fall 2021 ep- issue. And in there, they have there's an article by someone named Taylor Cole, who has a piece called Technology, Media, and the Slasher Formula in Scream 4. And and what's interesting and what Cole brings up is is the ways in which the film manages to to stick in many respects to this traditional formula, but it also adds 
this necessary element of the 21st century world technology. And so Cole is kind of exploring, like, how can we still have a traditional formula that was built very much pre-technology, right? Like in the 70s or pre-21st mm-hmm. century technology, and, and then have a film like Scream 4 that is going to rely on all of that formula, but have to create this this innovative way of understanding the dangerous effects of media. And so, so mm-hmm. that's really what she's looking at, which I think is is really important. I think that's a fantastic way into Scream 4. So I'm really excited to hear more of the scholarship. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is really interesting that she talks about is is the use of the gun by Jill. Uh, so, you know, Pearl uh-huh. Clover in her sort of initial assessment of the final girl said that guns have no place in slasher films because they fail. Right. That's that's a quote from her. But Jill uses a gun, right? She actually shoots Trevor with one, but right. it also ends up at, at at one point being ineffective. So so the, here yeah. is, is one way that we see that the killers sort of are more flexible because they're willing to use any weapon, but they also don't seem to understand how to fully use the weapons that they have, right? They don't understand the danger of the things that they have in front of them, just like uh, technology. Then Cole talks about the fact that it is important that the slasher involves knives and that the majority of the 10 kills in this particular film do involve knives so that it's not just the use of modern weapons. But she says, however, I would suggest that Jill's use of guns for kills both successful and attempted, speaks to the younger generation's need for instant gratification. And then a little later, she says, by the third act, Jill's impatience and need for instant gratification causes her to slip and fail. In a world where everything is available at the push of a button, working hard and being patient seem unnecessary. However, Mm -hmm. impatience often leads to failure. And I think that's one of the big, really important differences uh, between Scream and Scream 4. Yeah, and I think that that element is fantastically contrasted by Sydney's uh, final usage of the defibrillator, which is also a piece of technology um, and a different piece of technology from anything we've seen in the screen films. Or honestly, I think this may have been one of the first times I've seen someone killed with a defibrillator just (laughs) in general. But the defibrillator has to literally take time to charge up and you have Sydney is forced to be slow and meticulous and patient. And ultimately, that is what allows her to be successful, in contrast to Jill. Yeah, it's it's a, the defibrillator is a 20th century technology in a 21st mm-hmm. century technology world. I think that's a great example. I feel like, I don't know what this says about me, that I've seen lots of defibrillator deaths. Interesting. In, in films, in films, I should, I should clarify uh, that. Um, you're like, actually, I've seen many. Have, yeah. They happen all the time here. In oh. my home, where we have them. <laughs> but, but, I, but it's nevertheless, I, I, I'm, I have goosebumps uh, from what you just said, because I, I think that that's such an important element. And that brings me to the second piece of scholarship I want to reference. So there's a fantastic scholar named Alexandra West. She writes a lot about French extreme new horror so my favorite (laughs) yeah so you know whenever you're just feeling like being traumatized in ways you can't untraumatize yourself you can turn to some of the films she looks at she also (laughs) has a book on the 1990s teen horror cycle and in there she does talk about scream 4 because you know the first couple of screams are still in that 1990s franchise right so she has a chapter where she's talking about scream in particular and she dedicates the last several pages to scream 4 and and there are a couple of things that she does. She talks about, which you and I will talk about a little bit more, the the cold 
openings. Mold. Yes. <laughs> uh, but then she also says at the end that Jill, however, sees the true goal not as being a murderer, but as being a survivor. She brings death mm-hmm. to Wordsboro in hopes of getting the same attention she has seen lavished on Sydney. In the final chilling moments of Scream 4, news crews are lined up outside the hospital, breathlessly reporting on the heroics of Jill, who, unbeknownst to them, lies above them dead. Jill is another victim of a media-obsessed culture, one that sought to control a narrative in hopes of attaining fame and fortune at the cost of other people's lives. Mm-hmm. When Sydney tells Jill not to mess with the original, she is, in essence, not only standing up for herself and her story, but also once again claiming the narrative as hers. While Scream 4 offers up a new generation of characters to carry on the torch of the franchise, it kills them off because all roads lead back to Sydney and the night of Stu's party. Mm-hmm. Western culture is content to relieve tragedy after tragedy in hopes of creating fear, uncertainty, and ratings. In Scream 4, Sydney acts as a reminder that trauma is rooted in the real and can never be manufactured. And I think that's that's really important. That, so there are a couple of things in that, that final paragraph yeah. that I think are, are worth thinking about. And one of them is, again, uh, you know, Sydney reclaiming the narrative for herself. I think, it's, mm-hmm. I think that this franchise has and continues in Scream 5 reminding us that at the end of the day it is about the OG right it is about Sydney and everything everything can be traced back to the original site of trauma yeah and Sydney personifies that in kind of like a beautiful line right at the end where she's like don't mess with the original yeah which speaks so much to I think just like this sentiment remake culture reboot culture all of these yeah. just this idea of there is something very real about that original thing and about this, either the source of trauma, this original property, this original idea. And so much, it's just like, it's distorted in the process. And I think that that line is just a really nice thesis for Scream 4. Yes. And it's a really nice thesis. So one one of the things you and I talk about all the time is how much we love the fact that Wes Craven, like, never keeps hostages alive right? like he's just like so he's like you know who i hate the film industry and then we're yeah. like oh that's a bold move good sir but like in this film you know i mean so in 2011 right this would have been a year after the 2010 film came out of uh the remake of a nightmare on elm street which you know was a film that was made and if you want to know more of our thoughts on it you can go and listen to the episode we recorded on that and, and if you want to know more of Wes Craven's thoughts, you can listen to his line of to watch this film where he says, don't mess with the original. Exactly, exactly. And and I think it's not just it's not just the idea of like new stuff is bad, right? Right. Or or even I don't even think that Craven would be against the concept of of adaptations or remakes as a as a general principle. What I what I think it is is that that idea, again, that Wes says about how Jill is trying to create, she's trying to fabricate this experience, and that's not possible, right? It's not possible to to engineer or, like, create a chemical formula to do this. Uh, you know, it just, it's this yeah. magic that happens that you just can't explain, right? Or in the case of Sydney, it's not magic. It's just this trauma that happens that you can't, you can't have planned for. And I think that's that's part of that thesis, right? It's don't mess with the original because you don't have the ingredients to to fabricate it, right? Like you will never be able to recreate it. It's not possible. It's literally not possible to recreate the magic. Yeah. And then 
it is not possible. And then this film yet uses that to quite literally recreate many of the key moments from the original screen in a way. But I and I those two things might sound contradictory initially, but I think both can coexist at the same time. Me too. I think because Scream 4 is still trying to be an independent project, but one that's still in touch with the original, right? Whereas a lot of the remakes, you know, like Jill wants to eradicate Sydney, right? Right. And and I think that a lot of remakes in the in the aughts and then the early 2000s were seeking to eradicate their predecessors, yeah. right? It was right. like, why would you ever need the original Nightmare on Elm Street, the original Friday the 13th, when you could instead watch this new, slicker, shinier version? And it's like, but the whole reason I'm watching this film is because I love the original. Why are you trying right. to eradicate it? And I think that's the tension, right? Like, if Jill is yeah. going to eradicate Sydney, she's eradicating the whole legacy that she's wanting to claim. Exactly. That, yeah, I think that's a really interesting, interesting point. I think it also just touches on this element that is prevalent in reboots, remakes, that is this emphasis on recreating the feeling uh, of intensity that comes from those kills that are present in the original source materials or just other slashers that directors have seen. And so all effort is just on the kills like jill is putting everything is on these kills you got to show people it it's not enough to just include them anymore you really got to up the gore so that people can so that people can viscerally feel it and i think that there's just some this film is kind of commenting on that fact that it no it's not just those individual elements of slashing and killing that are important and make up this this world and it's why people like them it's the other elements that you're that jill in this case, is missing out on, and what and Sydney knows. And this film, and it's really been doing, the franchise has been doing this since the introduction of the, of the made-up Stab franchise, mm-hmm. is, is also aware of the fact that if you're going to have a remake, you have to keep the fan base in mind, right? And when we see, of course, in, in Scream 4 that, you know, some of the, Sometimes the fans are a little rabid and, and not in good ways, but I'm thinking specifically mm-hmm. about that marathon, right? Where they're watching all of the stab films. Right. And and there's oftentimes this just attitude in remakes of we're gonna create something for, for the next generation. Who cares about who cares about the fans that are the reason we can afford to make this this remake? And it's right. a really weird there's an element and we've talked about this in, in some of our discussions of, of remakes. There's a way in which People who are making remakes are simultaneously trying to create an attitude of nostalgia and amnesia. And it's not mm-hmm. possible. It's 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 literally not possible to have both. And, yeah, and because I, you can't ask people to remember to think back to the past while also being like, mm, yeah, but this is original. Yeah, you, can't have, first time. <laughs> you can't have a longing for something that once was if you don't remember what once was. And I think yeah. that, that Scream 4 is, is very cognizant of that because Jill... She doesn't understand the full story, right? She's not interested in the past. All she's interested is in is in her future. And that's and she ultimately fails, right? Because she doesn't, first off, she doesn't fully understand that she needs to be prepared for the not just Sydney, but Sydney's crew, right? Like she doesn't right. seem to understand that. She doesn't understand that it is because of uh Sydney's relationship with Gail and Dewey that she is stronger, right? And so there's so yeah. much that Jill is ignoring. There's so much that she's choosing to ignore 
but she's nevertheless wanting to capitalize on on the nostalgic elements of, of being the final girl. I think what's interesting about this film too, in, in light of the final girl, is you know you and I've talked about how much we've been enjoying the re envisioning of of the final girl in the last few years in. Mm-hmm particularly in some some of the fiction that's emerged yeah. with people like Grady Hendrix and Stephen Graham Jones. And I feel like Scream 4 is once again, just like with Scream, uh, the 1996 film, it's like paving the way for some of these conversations because it asks us mm-hmm. a really important question. And that is, is it trauma that makes a final girl or is it something else? Because Jill or- technically suffers, yeah. self-inflicted, but she suffers trauma. Right. Is it trauma or is it just merely surviving Yes, uh, that makes the final girl? And Jill seems to put all of her eggs in the basket of it's just about surviving. Yes. Whereas I, I think that, yeah. And this is something that I think Hendrix in particular, right, in the final girl support group is, is very much interested in exploring. Uh, yes, because in that one, it, it the central character, the only thing that she did is she she just survived. She didn't fight back. She didn't do any of these ele- any of those elements that the other final girls uh, in this in that support group in the final girl support group they did. So they had that long conversation about whether or not she could be a final girl, even be considered putting all these boxes, trying to like really come up with this boxy, clear, specific definition of the final girl. Yeah, this film, I don't know if it puts it in a box, but it certainly pushes back against survival as being the only element that makes a final girl. Yes. Yeah, there's there's something about, you know, that it is through the act of survival that they have like gone through the fire and been refined, right? Like so mm-hmm. just like metal can be refined um and the impurities can be removed. You know, Sydney by scream 4 and 5, Sydney is almost inhuman right like like you know she's gonna make it right and i and i yeah i'm waiting for them to decide that that's gonna that you know it's gonna be an option to kill her off i'm waiting for that because i know that you know nothing is safe in the scream franchise but i think one of the things that scream 4 does is it shows us that at some point when you've survived for that long and and you've you have to like it has to change you it has to change you in ways that don't really leave you in that same sort of raw form that you were before. Because Sydney is awesome in Scream 1, but she's a badass by Scream 4, right? She's like, mm-hmm. nah. And you're like, this is so true, Sydney, say more. And and I think that's important. And it's it's one of the consequences, unfortunately, of having her be the quote older generation in the film, right? That we're supposed to see her as having all the answers. I would have liked to see, have seen maybe a little bit more with her really sort of struggling with it, but there's not time for that, right? There wasn't time for that in this film. Yeah. And I guess maybe not even could, I could have added a little bit, but I think it also kind of just articulates that Sydney has been kind of that development. She's been on this kind of development. She's had 15 years since it. She is a lot stronger. She screamed, the whole thing of Scream 2 was this like, I'm going to isolate myself, be alone, not not really engage and she is pretty miserable she struggles a lot in that one whereas in the, I, to a lesser extent in screen three but especially in this one she is in a different place she has a much stronger support system and so i i kind of actually really enjoyed getting to see a slightly more 
stable and secure Sydney. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, she's not stable for very long. This right, film puts right. her through hell again, as, right. they, as, as they always do in the Scream films. But I, I don't know. Does that... It does make sense. And, and I, <laughs> makes I, sense. I agree. Okay, okay. I think what I want is just like 17 more Scream films. Like, so that we can yeah. just have all the things that I want. I don't think it's a complaint about what we get in Scream 4 so much as it's that I just want more. Um, and actually, I think yeah. some of it has to do with in Scream 5, you know, we know that she has a kid because we see her doing the, like, mommy run in the park. Right. I would have right. liked to have seen, I think in Scream 5, I wanted to see some of her life to see how she has managed to be informed by her trauma. but like not haunted by it like i would have loved it if she's just like for example really good at using a knife in the kitchen right or something like that yeah uh so i think actually my criticism is is not about screen four it's about screen five which is which is okay because i'm willing to level several criticisms that way to go back to the idea of of technology mm-hmm. we have of course in in this film a couple of different ways that we're seeing technology at play right so of course we're right. going to be able to have phones cell phones in a way that that not again we go back to one of my favorite lines in the 1996 film where he's like where did you get a cellular phone son you know <laughs> and by scream four we have we have none of that right nobody is is wondering yeah. how people where have, they got the phone yeah, where they got a cellular phone <laughs> but instead we have charlie and we see charlie filming you know just his like everyday experiences but ex- filming it as part of this this thing that he's going to edit that's going to be an edited version of his unedited life, right? That sort of, of, of thing. Um, and of course, then we find out that like it's also going to help Jill get more fans. But I think that's an important element of, of this film to see just the layers of, of representation and, and how the more that media gets involved, the less authentic things can be. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very... And I mean, that's what... It's a great commentary on social media without explicitly being about social media too. that that process of filming, because mm-hmm. it just asks, like, how authentic can you truly be when a camera is on? Are you performing and for the for yourself and the people in that moment? Or are you performing for the camera and the imagined audience later on? And this film really, st- I mean, it takes a stance that ab- nothing on camera is real, which I think it makes sense. This is a film. So... That's kind of the whole premise of movies, yeah. I suppose. And and Cole in her in her article on technology has this important line where she says, The first scream was thought to be commenting on those school shooters who were often students believed to be normal who hid in plain sight. And then she right. says, Scream four centers a society where killers and mass shootings gain infamy. Mm-hmm. And and I think that and then she says, and Jill's need for recognition is eerily related to the way mass shooters copy other shootings to gain infamy. And again, that is a cultural move. If we go back to what we said at the beginning, right? That there are things that this film is going to carry over from the original scream. And there are things that this film has to be like, but we're in a different society. It may have only been like 13, 15 years, but those were incredible years in terms of changing all the landscapes. Yeah. Because I think it's also interesting that Jill doesn't she wants the killings and the the incident to be very well seen and published but she doesn't want herself to be recognized as the killer which is different from some of the other 
killers who either don't care at all about if they're known or that's just not even brought up. She explicitly is a killer who wants to is marketing herself as the victim. And I think even the parties that we see in Scream versus Scream 4 illustrate mm-hmm. the difference in, in cultures because in, in Scream when they get together at that party it's just like bacchanalia of you know like let's remember yeah. we're kids and, and let's just get together and you know, let's fight against the man, man. Um, and in and Scream Four, after they come back from the stab screenings, it's it's more like they they don't know how to exist if they don't have an audience, even if it's just an audience of their friends. And and so that that party feels very toxic in in a way that yeah. the original Scream Party doesn't, despite the fact that the original Scream Party has more drinking, you know, sexing up and like people, right? But there's just something about that Scream 4 party that just reminds us that that there's an entire culture that has been raised never being alone, right? Never understanding what it means to, to be alone. Yeah. And I think it's also different because the characters in that, in that scene, uh, two of them are lying much, much more explicitly yes. the entire time, as opposed to in Scream, in the original Scream, in which... The killers don't really have to lie. They're just not present or around or in the conversations or they just don't get really involved in those. Whereas in this one, it is active deception on the part of both Jill and Charlie in that toxic party in that in that room. Those two definitely know something huge that the rest don't, which is an interesting change as well. It is interesting. And it goes back to showing that even though Stu and Billy had it planned ish right um yeah that you know it wasn't it wasn't crafted in the way that it was uh-huh. for, for jill and charlie where they like they not only decided who they were going to kill but they decided that who what their roles were i mean it's just so much more the timing that they were going to kill everybody the exact location people needed to fall yeah, yeah. It, much much more detailed it's interesting that the criticism of scream 4 is either it was cliche and it didn't do anything new or mm-hmm. it did too much that was new and was too meta, right? Like, and, and I was reading somebody that was like, that said, is it possible to be both those things? That doesn't seem right. Uh, and I, but I, I think that, that that's what we've been talking about is that there are two threads running throughout this film. Mm-hmm. And the thing that Craven and Williamson did that is just phenomenal is they managed to weave together two things that should not be complementary and, and show yeah. us that they actually are, in, that if we can understand one, it can enrich our understanding of the other. Yeah, I, they play into the dissonance of, yes. the, of the themes, of the, of the generational understandings, of the tension between remakes being things of love versus remakes being just like things of cyclical things to be repeated. Exactly. Uh, it there yeah it's just so so such interesting themes that are present and can, can that are present and pitted against each other yes. throughout the film really fantastic and are done from the very first moments of the film so right. tony and i have talked a lot in a lot of episodes about how much cold openings anger us because yeah. often cold <laughs> openings are this like feel like the filmmakers were just like we're not sure which one and we can't you know kill any of our darlings so we're just going to put them all in Mm -hmm. and i actually i read something that there was another alternative opening that was just an extension of of marnie and jenny 
and so, and the person I was reading this on Screen Rant because you can if you go to Screen Rant you can watch that that opening, and whoever wrote this piece was saying that they thought it made much more sense and it was much more fitting, and I I vehemently disagree with them. So for those of you yeah. that don't remember, because Tony and I had to like work it through, right? The the film opens with two characters played by Lucy Hale and. Uh, Shanine Grimes. And they are talking through or things. Shanae Grimes. Yeah. And they are talking through things and then murder. And then it we realize that that is something that two other people are watching. And of course, these other two people are perhaps better known uh, actresses. And, and that is Anna Paquin and Kristen Bell. And the thing to remember about Kristen Bell is that at that t- this time, Kristen Bell is also the voice of, of Gossip Girl, right? So she's there's this way in which she's already serving as a commentary about media and fame and all that stuff. And then Kristen Bell kills Anna Paquin's character. Uh, Kristen Bell's character kills Anna Paquin's character. And then it goes into us seeing that Marnie and Jenny are watching Stab 7. And here's, here's the dialogue. So Marnie says, it begs the question that if the beginning of Stab 7 is Stab 6, then is the beginning of Stab 6 Stab 5? And if so, then what is Stab 4 about? And then Jenny says, you're overthinking it. Marnie says, am I? Or did whoever made it just underthink it? There's a reason I don't watch these movies. And then Jenny says, I can't believe you haven't seen them. We live in Woodsboro. Uh, And then Marnie says, that has nothing to do with Woodsboro. I thought you said Stab was based on a true story. And Jenny says, the first three, the original trilogy is based off of Sidney Prescott. But then... She threatened to sue them if they used her story. So then they just started making stuff up. Stab five has time travel, which is by far the worst. And I think that is a perfect way. That whole sequence is a perfect way for this film to be doing the things it's doing. I agree. It's just, it's meta commentary inside meta commentary. It's just a Russian doll of of meta. And it's, it's just so funny too. It's like, and because and each care each of the times you see it, like Kristen Bell and Anna Paquin get some really good one-liners in there too about just like oh my god, it's too meta for its own good. Basically, those reviews that you were yes. saying earlier, the film itself has characters in there that say those same things, yes. and which is hilarious. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And then just seeing Kristen Bell get so angry and be like, yeah, don't question it all. Yes. And then killing and then going into this other thing. Um, and then the time travel joke, which is apparently a reference to an Wes Craven wanted to use time travel in Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh and he gosh. pitched that idea and the studio sh- shot it down and told him that wasn't a good idea. So then he put it in. It felt like yeah. shows up here. Yeah. Which again, it's just, I love it when Wes Craven's like, I have things to share. I have, I have tea to drop in. Um, and, but, but you're so right that it, this Russian nesting doll effect, it, it goes back to that line that you said um, at the beginning that Gail Weathers says, right, where she's like, I don't know what meta means to all the kids are using it. You know? Yeah. And, and I think that this film sort of reminds us of, of like what it means to be meta, but also the fact that, that you can be too meta but you can also not be meta. No, it's just, it's such a great way and, of, of raising these ideas. And also like, is it meta if you just repeat the thing or just include a reference yeah. to the thing? Like with that opening sequence, which is basically just like a recreation of Drew Barrymore's yeah. opening thing with 
little to no commentary. And I kind of was a little bit like, uh oh, we're starting with this. I was like, this is not gonna. I was like, this is kind of disappointing. Yeah. I had heard Scream Four was. I had assumed better than just a simple repetition. Yeah. But the, and of course they used that. They used my expectations at, against me yeah. to like trick me when they cut to then stab seven and then out of stab seven into screen four. Yes. Because I think what you said is spot on, right? That that meta is not just making a reference to, right? It is it is commenting on. It is thinking about. And you know, I'm gonna make a statement that is pretty declarative, but I don't feel like it's that controversial. And that is, is that I think one of the best people doing this is Wes Craven. Wes Craven knew how to make us think about the genre in a way that I, I don't know if anyone currently has figured out. I think Peel is, is moving there in some respects, mm-hmm. but I, I think that because his films are not always as, as comedy driven as, as mm-hmm. Craven's are, he's not able to be as like explicit in it. Uh, but I think that's what Scream 4 gives us, right? Is it reminds us of this really important message, which is, is it okay that we, the fans, are still watching horror? Because we keep yeah. seeing in these films, quote, horror fans that are doing really atrocious things to each other. And and I yeah. think Scream 4 reminds us that actually it horror fans are not the problem. Horror fans who don't think, they're the problem. Are, yeah. I and I agree. It's there hasn't really been kind of a, a new new horror has certainly been emerging uh, in this. And I think we're in, we are in a current currently like recording this in twenty twenty two. We're in a different period of horror, more I guess artsy horror or surreal horror kind of right now. But we don't really have like a Wes Craven who is really leading the horror scene in at least in the film from a meta or comedy perspective i guess the closest would maybe be like happy death day and those films uh in terms of they they play with meta and the cyclical nature of killing and this why do we enjoy this sick thing so much and just seeing it over and over again when we know it's the same thing i think that's the closest i think if simon Pegg and crew did more right because they did you know they they have no Shaun at the Dead. Yeah, but they amazing. have no desire, I don't think, just to be limited to one genre. So, so because yeah. they they keep breaking genres uh, uh, and then just moving on to a new genre, I think it's hard to label them. But yeah, there are some some blips or some moments. But I, I think it's time for you know Wes Craven's predecessor to to emerge. And and I think Scream Five was attempting to do it. However, I think it maybe went leaned too nostalgic new to nostalgia as opposed to doing anything yeah anything new or really evolving the medium or the commentary or the themes present so i i don't know really excited i would this is i think meta and comedy with and within horror properties is some of my favorite things personally so which is why i've loved Wes craven loved talking about nightmare and loved talking about all of the scream films and yeah need some more so filmmakers writers Get out there, meta it up. At some point, Tony, we should go back now that you've seen Scream one through four and and, and see rewatch Scream five and and see how our thoughts have changed. But in the meantime, for those of you listening, we do have an eerie extra where we sort of did like a immediate thoughts and feelings about Scream five having just emerged from the audience. 
And of course, we have episodes on Scream 1, 2, 3, and 4. And for those of you that have been enjoying our franchise explorations, we have some good news uh, because we have another franchise that we're going to do. It's, it's probably, if you're like ticking off the franchises on your hand, it's probably the next one that you're like, why haven't you done this one yet? So Tony, what franchise will we eventually be getting to next? We are going to be moving on to Friday the 13th. Yay. And our first episode is going to release on May 13, which is Friday the 13th. So that's terribly exciting. And yes, that was 100% on purpose. So, <laughs> so there should be no doubt that we just decided to like. What? Take I know. <laughs> I thought it was a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> it was. What a wa- weird coincidence. Uh, we also are for our 75th episode, which is coming up rather fast going to yeah. finally do what we've promised you we've been doing for a while and that is we're going to have an episode on the series ash vs evil dead yes which i'm so excited we've been watching we've been watching it together yes. and it has been so much fun i listen you guys it's three seasons it's not a long commitment at all it's only like 10 episodes if you haven't checked it out i would highly highly recommend that you start watching ash versus the evil dead so that you can participate and enjoy our episode over that i'm so excited we're watching it together it's been you know the last movie we saw together was child's play and, was. and that was just for kicks and giggles we weren't even doing an episode on it so this is the first time we're watching something we enjoy together for the sake yeah. of the the podcast and that's really exciting so that's all stuff that's coming down the the pike so to speak but tony what is our our next episode going to be on We are going to be returning to our cannibal theme, and we are going to be devouring Tender is the Flesh on our next podcast episode. So this is a book, because it's time, as we do every so often, about quarterly, for us to look at a book. Um, It's an Argentine novel that came out in... It came out in 2017. So readers, grab that book, and and as, as Tony said, devour it. (laughs) <laughs> Tony, what else do audiences need to know at this moment in time? You can always get in touch with us on social media. All of our links to our description to those are in the description of this podcast um, or out on the YouTube video. Uh, if you're listening on YouTube, you can get in touch with us there or via our email. Please give us a rating and on wherever you get your podcast from. If you enjoyed this, it really helps us get our name out there and it just means the world to us. I also want to take a moment to thank Jackson O'Brien, who has been the editor extraordinaire for the last several episodes, including the episode on Raw, which we forgot to give him a verbal acknowledgement. Thank you so much, Jackson. Thank you so much to the whole Such a Nightmare team that is helping with our social media and the website, all of that good stuff. Yeah, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. We couldn't do it without you. Yeah, we really, really couldn't. And we couldn't do it without you, our listeners. So thank you so very much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spooktacular day.